Welcome to episode uh, 47 of the Lebanese uh, Physicians Podcast. And today we will be discussing the politics of healthcare in, uh, in Lebanon, specifically and in the region, uh, in the Middle East region. And uh, with us today, we have three guests. And actually, when we look when, uh, when we look at where each one of us is, we're in uh, four separate time zones right now. We've got uh, Dr. Uh, Shireen Bazan, uh, who's, uh, who's in uh, Beirut, uh, Lebanon right now, and uh, Alexandra Chen, who's in London, and uh, Adam Kautz, who's in Dubai right now. Uh, so uh, welcome, welcome to all of you to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Khalil. And, Thank you, Khalil. Uh, and uh, before we start, I'm just going to introduce... Uh, uh, our different guests. So Dr. Uh, Shirin Bazan is a, a family medicine and anti-aging uh, specialist who is currently based in uh, Beirut and works at uh, Clemenceau Medical Center, which affiliated with uh, Johns Hopkins uh, International. And uh, she has been involved with the care of post-cancer survivors, and uh, she has done her anti-aging uh, studies uh, in Toulouse, uh, France. She also is a lecturer at St. Joseph uh, University. Alexandra Chen is actually a men- child and mental health specialist uh, who is, comes from Hong Kong originally, and uh, she has been involved in the Middle East region, including uh, Lebanon, Jordan, and uh, other areas, uh, including also uh, South Africa, uh, and has been involved with the care of uh, refugees and with child mental health. Uh, she has also has 15 years of experience advising the UN, the World Bank, and local governments to design interventions for children and families affected uh, by conflict and uh, adversity. And uh, Adam uh, Kautz is an academic at the University of Cambridge in the UK, has been living, working, and studying in the region since 2008. He's co-investigator on the £6 million Global Challenges Research uh, Fund project, research for uh, health and conflict. This is a multinational project linking the UK with partners in Lebanon, Jordan, Gaza, and Turkey. And and. Adam is very connected to Lebanon as his uh, wife is uh, Lebanese too. Yes, <laughs> some skin in the game. Exactly, you've got some skin in the game. So, uh, so I'm going to ask uh, Adam first, how did the idea for your project or uh, the movie uh, come about discussing the politics of health in, uh, in Lebanon? And uh, what's the research for the health and conflict uh, project uh, looking at? Well, yeah, it's, thank you for uh, having us, Halil. So we've been, been working, living in the region since 2008, 2009, in Syria, then Lebanon, Jordan. Yeah, it's using things that I'd seen in the UK about how politics and the social economic determinants of health affects people's well-being and health. Does that go on in the Middle East? Yes, it does. When these countries are not much different from each other in the, in, the, in this sense, so that's that's sort of the kernel where it's come from. And the project that we've been doing over the last five years with colleagues at the American University of Beirut and King's College London, uh, with Professor Richard Sullivan, Professor Priti Patel, and Doctor uh, Doctor and Professor Shadi Saleh, is to look at how the non-health factors affect people's health and how that affects health services. So as as we've discussed in the report, uh, which is worth reading, not just to look, watch the film, but uh, health is not just about health services. It's about how you, where you live, the job you do, 
affects health. But the the crux of it all is about how politicians make those decisions as to whether is health prioritized as a public policy issue or is it not? It's in the pandemic we saw this thing about lives and lively livelihoods, health and wealth. So that's that's really sort of the that's the hot potch explanation. And of course, yeah, I lived in the region. My parents-in-law lived there. Close friends have been through tragedy and turmoil by living in Lebanon, who were Lebanese, Syrian refugees, Palestinians. So it's that's that's the inspiration for all this comes from. Right, and 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 a lot of times, I mean, we think about the region. We all people always hear in the news. Uh, a lot about the conflicts that happen, but but we don't hear as much about the social, uh, economic, and health impacts on the population of the region. And this is an interesting study, uh, looking uh, interesting research and interesting study looking at that. So how did you how did you and uh, how did you and Shireen and uh, Alexandra, I guess, meet and get to know each other uh, to collaborate on the project? Uh, so I well, I met Alexandra through her work with UNICEF, leading a mental health project with the in Lebanon and Jordan, uh, I think in 2013, we were all trying to do the same thing. As you know, Lebanon, Beirut is a village, so everybody knows each other. And this is how it spawned that uh, collaboration with Shireen. Yep, we, I'd met Shireen through my cl- also close friend, Edith Champagne, who's the filmmaker uh, who worked for UNHCR. In Geneva and Lebanon over the last uh, six years. And my idea talking to Edith was to, yeah, to try and get this, get our academic, dry academic subject because people don't read reports. The, the guy in the taxi in Beirut does not read a report or the politicians either in London or Beirut, unfortunately, don't read tend to not read those reports. So I've worked with Edith before on looking at how Syrian refugee doctors can be integrated into European health systems. And we thought, uh, yeah, the wider thoughts, turning that re- our political economy of health report into a documentary film would be a good idea to yeah, increase its impact. And Shireen is the, she has a very good way of, disseminating information through Instagram and she sort of knows the scene on the ground. Right. And yeah, yeah, it was, I mean, it was a good uh, documentary and it's attention grabbing and also not too long. So for people who have a short uh, attention span, they can still watch it and get all the information they need uh, from it. Uh, Of course, we'll have a link uh, for the documentary uh, on yeah. the podcast afterwards, and Shireen, how did you get? How did you? I mean, we, I know you met Adam, but how did you get involved uh, in the project? Uh, how did this come about? So I know Miss uh, um, Edith Champagne since uh, her days here in Lebanon while she was working for UNHCR, and uh, I was approached by her. So I met her. We were in Paris actually, and uh, she told me about the project and. Uh, 
So we started talking, we did some, how we say, brainstorming meetings. We discussed a little bit and we thought, what is the best way to present this academic paper? And to highlight the many challenges Lebanon healthcare system has been facing, and especially the last two years that have been very critical for the country. So, and, and we started thinking, I mean, who are the people we should be talking to? Which healthcare facilities should we visit? Uh, what are the best locations to shoot and all of that? And we agreed and uh, actually she flew back to Lebanon two weeks after the meetings and uh, we shot the film over a few weeks uh, <laughs> with the great luck and, and timing really with the shoots. We were as if, to say the least, divinely guided through the weather, meeting the people, we had the great stories. Uh, it took some time to put the story together and to review the script just to have like a coherent uh, feel of the whole thing because it has to be a short film. And uh, Edith really, uh, I salute her, she did a wonderful job in pushing everybody to do their best uh, game. And actually, I'm very proud to say that the short film reached around 30,000 views shortly after it was released on Instagram. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great number of views. Uh... Uh, shortly after release, and when when was it, when was the film released? So we released it after the uh, Cambridge. Uh, actually, it's the first day of the Cambridge conference, which was twenty uh, first of March, like on uh, Spring Day. <laughs> we were in Cambridge, and it uh, it premiered uh, during the conference uh, held in Cambridge, and we short released it after that. Excellent, and, I, and hopefully we'll talk about the impact. Uh, that hopefully the film has had uh, on uh, people in and outside of uh, Lebanon. And uh, so one, one question I have, I mean, now we're talking about the big problems of the healthcare sector in Lebanon, but how was it? How was the healthcare sector in Lebanon uh, prior to the crisis? I mean, I, I think I think we all, we all had dreamt of moving back and I ended up actually moving back for a couple of years just because I thought it was a good sector at the time. But would you say, uh, that's a question for both Shireen and Adam, I think, would you say, has it been declining over the years or did it decline suddenly after the economic crisis? And uh, what's the status currently of doctors and nurses uh, before and after the crisis? So it was before the 2019 economic crisis, it was considered one of the best in the region. We have centers, hospitals, we have cutting edge technology. I mean, medical tourism has always been a part of Lebanon's many services to offer. And actually in January 2019, before the crisis, uh, according to Bloomberg's Healthcare Efficiency Index, Lebanon has reached the top 25 in the world healthcare efficiency. It ranked 23rd, and it proved its ability to accomplish great achievements in the medical field. Now, um, it's important to highlight here that the health that flourished in Lebanon before 2019 was mainly private, and it was mainly specialized care, but it wasn't the case for primary care. Uh, since the civil war, the private healthcare sector, because uh, of NGO support, uh, uh, it both grew noticeably, the private care and the NGOs, and the, they left the primary care sector very weak and very undermined. And uh, so even healthcare as a tendency, when I started my residency and when I started practicing, it, it was always a specialist's visit. It was always a curative visit. It was never a preventive visit. The health-seeking behaviors of people uh, were shifted uh, towards private hospitals, which formed around 90% of the hospitals in Lebanon. But if you want to look at it really, if you want to look at the reality 
of what the healthcare uh, foundation uh, was like, it was a fragmented and complex. Why? Be because over six ministries govern healthcare coverage in Lebanon. Uh, in, in Lebanon, we say because you have so many cooks, the the uh, the, the recipe is going to be you know it's not going to be well served. So each uh, ministry had its own limitation and challenge, and so the policies were shaped. Uh, to, to affect our decisions. I mean, I as a doctor, and I know many doctors, they ask the people, okay, so uh, what's your coverage before we actually uh, take a decision about ordering or not diagnostic testing, about prescribing a certain intervention or treatment, uh, about deciding hospital admissions or not. So um, in, the, in the surface, it was a great medical system, but uh, more so for uh, having great doctors, for having great specialized care, but not for having a fundamental strategy uh, to grow universal healthcare coverage for all. And, and that's my opinion. Adam, do you agree with, uh, with Shireen? But what, what's your assessment uh, of... Yeah, so of... I always agree with Shireen. <laughs> <laughs> but the, I mean the well I mean it's yeah it's very interesting what she says from on the ground but if you look at the international stats on Lebanon it was a yeah it was the best in the region but that's telling the best in the region half the country in Lebanon couldn't access cannot or more now cannot access basic healthcare services because you have to pay for them and if that's the best in the region, that's that's pretty shocking. And that's been going on for 20 years. So if you look at Iraq, Yemen, and the, those those countries, Jordan is a bit of an exception. It's yeah, it's, it's not good. Syria, of course, got a chronic protracted war going on there. It was yeah, Lebanon. The health system was good for those who who could pay. Is the is the key message. There were waits for, for people to go, let's say, to government-based hospitals or to get uh, beds in private hospitals when their insurance is government-based. Yeah. Uh, but if you're talking about providing universal health care, which the Lebanese government have been talking about with WHO for years, as, as, as it shows in the film and the report that we wrote, it that doesn't exist. It's it's lip service. It's just cosmetic. And I think Alexandra, I mean, she's lived in Lebanon. She's married to a Lebanese guy. I mean, she, she sees it every day as well. I mean, it's just access and out-of-pocket payments are not manageable for most people. Exactly, which which brings me to a question I was going to ask Alexandra's question since she's been involved with the mental health care for refugees in the in Lebanon and the region. Alexander, what was your assessment of the healthcare sector in Lebanon prior to 2019 in terms of taking care of the vulnerable and the refugees? Thanks, Khalil. Um, and Adam and Shireen, just always a pleasure to be um, to be working with you both. Um, I think prior to it's a funny it's a funny sort of timeline that we put in terms of prior to the crisis, but I think um, it's a bit arbitrary in terms of for whom, because if you're thinking about the refugees in particular, um, you know the crisis began very long time ago, um, and obviously for the Palestinians living in Lebanon as well. Um, it's been going on for even longer. So really, in terms of the vulnerable, a lot of uh, the care that has been afforded to them has been through the nonprofit um, or the humanitarian efforts. 
and the care in terms of uh, the psychologists, psychiatrists and the psychotherapists available um, have always uh, not been very large in, in, in response to the demand, the sheer need for it um, from children all the way um, through the elderly. But even about, I would say, before the economic collapse in Lebanon, um, there was some provision of it. Mental health is uh, not always prioritized in a humanitarian intervention, um, but there was greater effort, I would say, definitely before the economic collapse and before also um, the attention on um, Syria shifted, of course, with the news. So with that, I think... Um, before the collapse then, uh, you had greater service providers. There was an effort, especially when I was um, in the beginning of my time in Lebanon, when I had just met Adam, the effort to officialize, you know, uh, uh, what we called an MHPSS, uh, Mental Health and Psychosocial Support Working Group um, at the time. Um, and now, you know, there has been great effort to um, officialize the licensing procedure uh, in Lebanon as well. Um, that having been said, the resources are low. And I think think um, there is also the question of a class division even among the Lebanese who can access um, mental health services um, is actually you know was quite limited even before. Yeah that, that, that is that is correct that you bring up a good point because traditionally insurance in Lebanon does not pay adequately for uh, mental yeah. health services whether it's psychologists or psychiatrists and correct. actually when I, I did one podcast I remember with uh, about the study on the effect of the Beirut blast on children and I and I gathered from it that, that the children who were able to access care were the ones whose parents brought them and were able to pay for their services. Absolutely. Well, some of them were not able to access care after the past. For sure. And even then, um, I during the blast, I was um, in London. I was actually supposed to be in Beirut that week, but uh, something had sort of, I think, perhaps um, had, you know, changed. Um, uh, but uh, even being in London after the blast, I had many requests from parents uh, to support their children. And my youngest patient at the time was actually two and a half years old um, in response to it. But uh, the fact that they were reaching out beyond Lebanon also showed that uh, the need was quite high. Right, exactly, exactly. And I, I was just, sorry, I was just going to add, I mean, I think the key point is that 2019 is not, I mean, that's, that's an event, but the sort of the <laughs> economic, social, political malaise Proceeds uh, that. Yeah, by years. Mm -hmm. When when I first started living in Beirut and well, first went to Beirut in two thousand seven. Yeah, I mean, you you have taxi drivers asking you, can you instead of giving giving paying the fare, can you buy me the medications? And they take you to the pharmacy. So it's not yeah, right. it's just a sort of a, accumulation of trauma. That's happened to that country, uh, which started, yeah, decades ago. I'm afraid. Yes, I think perhaps one more point to highlight, Khalil, is that even before 2019, um, there were lots of pieces of the mental health um, ecosystem that were unregulated. Um, for example, medication. A lot of um, psychotropic medication was available over the counter. And when I was in living in Lebanon, I would sort of do this monthly around. Um, uh, to all the pharmacies and ask, you know, how much had been bought over the counter to get a sense of what people were self-medicating with. Um, and, you know, the numbers were very high, but also, you know, you can imagine creates great concern for how um, and in what quantities people are using medication without supervision. So 
that was already happening, you know, before 2019. But now I think there's a new problem of, of access to even and the availability of many medications. Right, right. So, so we were talking about 2019, I know, but it was a progressive decline, I think. So, so what was the crisis in 2019 and uh, how bad was the economic collapse? Because it was happening slowly, but it seemed like in 2019, it, there was a quick acceleration of the collapse. And this subsequently led to a huge economic and electricity crisis. Can we just briefly uh, discuss that crisis? And uh, any one of you can take this. Sure, sure, I, I can take this. So, um, as you know, everybody knows, after 2019, there has been a devaluation, a progressive devaluation of the Lebanese lira that reached almost around 90% uh, now. And the country throughout this time suffered from a shortage of fuel, of electricity crisis. Even hospitals were struggling to find fuel to keep their generators running and their ventilators running and to keep people alive in ICUs. These are true stories. These We, we lived through these times. Uh, We've we, we seen, uh, I mean, uh, stories on Instagram asking to support fuel for hospitals to keep people alive. But as Alexandra and Adam clearly mentioned, um, these are not why healthcare is in a dangerous position today only. This is not because it is a, a, an economic uh, collapse, and this is not only because there is an electricity crisis. The healthcare is suffering today because it's a, a multifactorial crisis. It's an economic meltdown. It's the massive explosion that ne nearly wiped out Beirut city in August 2020. And, and there is a, a COVID-19 induced public health crisis. And, and the, the influx of, of Syrian refugees from the neighboring war was preceding all of these factors. And so we had a weak uh, healthcare system to start with. We had people you know, coming in and we needed also to, to tend and to care for these people. You have an economic crisis. You have a massive explosion destroying most of the stock of medication in quarantine, of, of chemo, chemo medication, of, of chronic medication. Uh, people affected severely uh, short, and the, the COVID-19 made a lot of shortage also in public hospitals. So really when you look at it, these multifactorial uh, reasons uh, drove healthcare to be at a point where it's well, it's I would say it's an ICU bed right now. If if you want to like personalize healthcare, and all of that led to a lot of also doctors not believing in this country and a brain drain. And specialists were leaving, nurses were leaving, healthcare professionals were leaving. So I would say yes, that 2019 is one of the many many factors that led to health being suffering and suffocating today. So, so I, I think the, the way hospitals were affected was basically, I, I mean, I remember when I was there, we used to do the endobronchial ultrasound for lung cancer and and the needle, the price of the needle just multiplied by, I mean, it was, in the, in, let's say the hundreds of thousands became in the millions suddenly and, and people cannot afford that. So you get, you get to the point where you can't perform the things that you want to do and it gets much harder to practice the good healthcare according to you uh, or to, according to your values uh, when that happens. But uh, so, so how, how, would, how would we say the crisis affected hospitals and healthcare facilities in Lebanon? I know there's probably the economic aspect, we can discuss that uh, with the medication availability and then equipment availability and potentially how bad is the electricity crisis uh, on hospitals? Yes, yeah, so, so as you clearly um, 
stated like it was for an elective procedure you couldn't uh, do it properly so so the private sector and the specialized care became less important in terms that people couldn't afford this care anymore it was only restricted for emergencies now for for crucial and life saving well to do it, or or to those who can pay I mean, other you, you have the, the amount and then you can pay the sum or for people who could not pay, they had to seek help or seek other options. And clearly the balance between the private sector and the primary care sector changed. So what was around, let's say, 20% of people coming to the primary care services when, you know, I started practicing is now around um, 80 to 85%. And um and when we when we were shooting the film, it was clear that hospitals and we met with um, people who were in management. We met with we met with hospital directors, uh, and it was clear that they were suffering from shortage of fuel. They were struggling to get fuel, and um, healthcare workers were leaving in, in great numbers. Um, and people were coming more and more to primary care centers, to mobile clinics, to seek uh, symbolically uh, compensated uh, services or, I mean, free services, to, to, to say the least. So uh, because people could not afford uh, their medication or their uh, fees, the healthcare fees anymore. So for, from the problems that was uh, the hospitals were facing, one is the lack of funding. They were not paid by the Ministry of Public Health for a long time because of the economic crisis. Even the, the Social Security Fund was not paying them in a timely fashion. Even private insurances, which is a bit shocking, are not paying because of the devaluation of the lira. There was a lot of difference. So what was around 10% as an out-of-pocket expenditure that the patient used to pay priorly now became maybe 50%. Uh, and to cope with this, uh, we saw many hospitals had to close entire wards. They had to reduce their bed capacities by 40 50%. And um, we know from reports that uh, around 20 hospitals are um, in danger of closing in 2022. So um, these were basically the, the problems that actually touched and uh, that were they're very flagrant right now. Right. And that, that brings us, I think, to uh, your interview with Dr. Mawad, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. In the documentary uh, when he was talking about closing entire wards and and also he talked about uh, a bit the electricity issue like how, yeah. how is that affecting healthcare facilities at this point and what's the status of electricity in Lebanon? Yeah, so when I asked, uh, when you asked Dr. Ma'awad, this, this was a few weeks after the short film. So we did the short film. It was bad. But a few weeks after we called him, we said, we're just making sure, like, tell us how much is it costing you to run your uh, a fuel uh, hospital on fuel per day? He said, every single day, I have to secure uh, $1,500 US dollars to actually run uh, my hospital safely. So it's it's and it's not only just how expensive the fuel is, uh, it's about how difficult it is to procure it at certain times. Um, you know, the crisis in Lebanon is not like a stable crisis. It goes really like in a high pitched where like so suddenly you're out of fuel to benzene to run the cars. You're out of fuel for the generators. I remember the summer of August 2021, myself and my husband, we caught COVID-19 and it was the exact same day that 
there was a massive shortage in fuel in the entire country. We stayed one week sick and at home with two to three hours of electricity for the entire day. So imagine hospitals having COVID patients who need to be who need to be on ventilators running to secure uh, fuel. I mean, this must be very, very, very challenging to say to say the least. Right, because most of the electricity runs on generators, which depend on diesel, which is a very expensive uh, commodity. Yes. And, uh, and probably one of the good things that might come out of this is I think people are sh sh shifting to more renewable solar power. Solar yes. power, exactly. True. Yeah. Yes, yes. And, and what's the status of medication? I mean, we talked about electricity. That's a problem that costs a lot of money to maintain, to keep the wards open. What are medications like I've heard from people I worked with or from friends that they have not been able to access chemotherapy, uh, essential chemotherapy medications at times, uh, anesthetics yes. for surgeries. Uh, how is that, is that still a big problem? Yes, it's, it is still a big problem. So people are definitely suffering of um, lack of medication that is getting worse uh, at times. So it's not only unaffordable, some people can't pay, but it's unavailable. Mostly these are chronic medications um, that are needed to regulate uh, diabetes. Insulin was missing for, for months from the market. I mean, you could, you could run all the pharmacies in Beirut and not find one single you know, dose of insulin. I will tell you, it happened with me. I mean, we, we caught the COVID, for example, and my mom also. And so we were searching for steroids for her because, you know, with age, you need steroids at some point, and we couldn't find. And, and I, I saw many patients, uh, many people who I interviewed uh, in the short film, and they told me that we cannot afford it, we cannot find it, we are relying on our, you know, our family in the diaspora to send us whatever they can uh, to, to have our chronic medication. And uh, some people, most of the people that uh, I interviewed told me that their monthly income is actually less than one a single uh, chronic medication that uh, they have to pay for so that that's when it that when it comes to chronic uh, pills when they take the pills but the worst part is that uh, chemotherapy was missing like this is, uh, chemotherapy is the treatment and not only chemo immunotherapy as well that keeps a person who has cancer uh, alive and even targeted medication. And I'm going to tell you a story that you're going to probably find a bit uh, shocking. I don't know. So this is very recent. This is two weeks or three weeks ago. You know, as I said, I work uh, closely with oncology patients. So uh, we still have uh, we still have people coming from uh, Syria, from Iraq to get their treatments in Lebanon. We still have that. Medical tourism is still is still here. It's not tourism well, but they, they trust the Lebanese uh, healthcare system. So we were short on an immunotherapy medication for one of our uh, Lebanese patients. So they, they, they searched everywhere. They couldn't find it. And so we kindly asked the Syrian patient to please, please bring with you another box of that same medication and we will pay you, you know, the patient is willing to pay in fresh dollars for that. And uh, he, he agrees, brings the box, our pharmacist tracks the box, the box came from Lebanon subsidized medication are sold and you know and there are traffics to neighboring countries and they are sold again here in the black market this is an issue that is normalized to a point where you know we can talk about it it's normal to talk about it it's not a big issue nobody's moving uh, and, and doing something that is sanctionary about this while this is taken from 
other people's lives. This is time taken from people's lives. Exactly. Basically, essential fresh dollars are being used to, from the central bank, are being used to subsidize the medication at a cheaper price. But then because it's cheaper, somebody benefits from that and sells it outside the country and then it comes back and uh, on the black market. Uh, That's a problem. So basically, the the deficiency of medications is multifactorial. I think one is maybe uh, the inability to import as much because of the unavailability, I guess, of as much fresh dollars in the central bank. So you lose some of the subsidies on the medications uh, and you don't import them or they just become, if you subsidize them, they go elsewhere or they're just very expensive that people cannot afford them. Uh, Yes, many layers to that. Exactly. And as we, as we talk about this, I mean, we, we need to, I mean, we're talking here about the effect of the, I think, healthcare crisis on, on people, even people who are middle class or people who are rich and have the means. But uh, Alexandra is involved uh, a lot with refugee care. And, and I want to ask her, how have these multiple crises affected uh, uh, the Lebanese and refugees, especially the mental health of the Lebanese and the refugees? Thanks, Khalil. Um, So unfortunately, as you can imagine, um, this has uh, really impacted negatively the mental health of both Lebanese as well as the refugee population. Um, The first I would say is that the sheer numbers, um, the overall numbers of those who are experiencing some level of mental suffering um, has been greater um, at the same time that the number of providers in country has been dropping. Uh, In addition to that, uh, the intensity of the suffering is also um, has been quite remarkable. Um, During COVID, we saw a really sharp uprise in suicidal rates among refugees as well as um, poor Lebanese, um, particularly among parents and and fathers who were out of work um, and just who felt desperate and just unable to feed their children. It was very heartbreaking. Um, During the first year of COVID, I was um, in lockdown in London, but I was on call um, for several NGOs at, you know, at Fajr, basically, um, between 3 and 5 a.m. most days a week, Uh, because that is often the time when parents will attempt suicide because their children are asleep. So we did have multiple emergency calls during that time and was very difficult. Um, In addition to that, I do think that um, it's important to recognize that in addition to the traumatic events that have happened on multiple fronts, both on an individual as well as a community level, like the Beirut blast, um, we also have uh, what we you know, refer to as toxic stress, this ex- long-term exposure to poverty and this um, really insane uncertainty that Shireen has um, made m- multiple reference to. And that has deeply affected um, young children. Um, like I said, my youngest um, patient was two and a half years old after the blast, um, uh, as well as the elderly. Um, men and women alike um, have been continually and continue to, I think, be affected. Um, and just an entire community still feels shaken by the incident, in particular in the Beirut blast, but um, the lack of clarity about what their future looks like in this economic collapse as well um, is a question for them. I think it's important to also note that for the Lebanese, um, this impact is not just within Lebanon. Um, those who have you know, felt forced to be in exile, whether they're in Dubai or in Cyprus or um, in, in the UK, for instance, uh, instance, continue to be affected, especially if they've got family um, back home, um, like we do in many ways. Right, exactly, because people forget that even if you're an expat, you still have to 
especially with the crisis right now, it's left to make sure your family members are supported and absolutely and, and able to access the necessary medications or healthcare that they need in the country. Mm-hmm. Just also, you know, lots of survivors' guilt, and then you know the continual challenge of getting money out of the banks um, to be able to support any mental health you know challenges in addition to other living expenses. Right. You've been in the mental health sector in the region and, and Lebanon for a while. Mm-hmm. What are what are the challenges that the mental health care sector faces in Lebanon, and what are some of the things that are missing or that that could be improved upon? I guess. Yes. Um, well, the first, I think, is just um, as uh, Adam has said, you know, the staffing is a huge issue. Um, you know, vast immigration of professional healthcare workers, you know, in, including and uh, not just the psychologists and psychiatrists, but also social workers, you know, nurses, doctors, and other specialists who have left uh, the country. Um, some numbers say 40% of doctors, for instance, um, and then many still are planning, I know, among my own colleagues um, to leave within the year. Uh, and with that, uh, there is increasing burnout as well. Um, those who are on the front lines are affected by the combination of, you know, the social political upheaval, COVID, the continued, um, you know, economic and also infrastructural collapse. You know, not having internet also means that you can't even do telehealth, for instance. Um, and uh, that has, uh, you know, these are stresses within their own lives in addition to that of their patients. So. Um, that burnout I have uh, continued to hear and grows, unfortunately, amongst colleagues in the region, um, just completely unable to take on anyone else um, onto the patient load as well. Uh, and just the exhaustion we hear in sort of private conversation is very real. Um, the third I would say is that, um, you know, we have, as we've mentioned, the uh, availability of medication um, as well as uh, the um, sustainability and I think the suitability of many of the interventions that we've traditionally used. Many of the therapeutic, psychotherapeutic interventions um, are borrowed from the West um, and were designed in many ways to help those who are struggling through a difficult period of time, but in relatively stable settings. But nothing is stable in Lebanon, absolutely nothing is stable. Um, And so how do you work um, in a model where you don't know when you'll get to speak to your patient next, for instance? and often in, in my work, uh, I, and sadly, um, I, I have a quite long waiting list. I'm perhaps one of the few um, Arabic speaking psychologists who works pro bono for the refugee community. And, and so often I will say to them, you know, in order for us uh, to new patients, you know, for us to work together, um, we're going to focus on the most pressing needs that you have. But um, then we may have to take a bit of a break to make room for someone else who is in a very emergency situation before we then go back to addressing long-term therapeutic goals such as developmental trauma, which are very important. But in this really what feels like a continually emergency situation, we have to be pragmatic. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think what's, what's hard is just that there's no end in sight at this point. And, and... Exactly. And one of the things I've heard too about the blast is also there's been no closure. Like you don't know hundred percent who did it. Nobody, nobody paid the price for this. So that's a big thing too. Yes, the lack of feeling of justice, I think, also is just an undercurrent of anger um, and uh, just shakenness in the community. Right, right. So I'm going to ask. Uh, Adam to start now. I think, and I mean, we've discussed the problems in both. Uh, oncologic or cancer care and in the care of, of regular ailments in Lebanon right now. And we've talked about the mental health challenges of care in Lebanon too. So 
So Adam, what, what do you think based on, based on your uh, experience and uh, based on the reception, I guess, of the documentary in Cambridge, uh, what do you think, what's next for the healthcare sector in, in Lebanon? What's, what's gonna happen next? Um, <laughs> would, you, would you like the diplomatic answer or the answer from the street? <laughs> um, I guess both. <laughs> I'll give you, but yes, I'll give you both. Diplomatically, I mean, for the donors, they see how it works out, as we've discussed, like with the what in the report, and uh, as you know, World Bank IMF will just see how it plays out. Uh, inevitably, the government defaults. Um, in the meantime, what people need support and help? How is that given? Um, as we saw in the film, NGOs fill that space. So clearly donors need to keep supporting a lot of the aid has now gone to the Ukraine, which is, well, which is needed, but there are multiple crises now in the Middle East, Europe, that uh, I don't think the donors, particularly the UN, are capable of dealing with. It was interesting uh, that a colleague had described Lebanon as the hospice patient uh, waiting to die, except there's no palliative care, which is a shocking statement. And that comes from somebody who's on the ground. So it's, it, it is grim. And our film reports add a bit to highlight what's going on, but there needs to be serious political will and intervention in Lebanon, the region, and within the UN to, to do something because it will, I mean, this situation will, will eventually end and you have a war, I think, is the ultimate end of that. Hopefully not, but that's a possibility, that's correct. So, so Shireen, you're on the ground too. How do you see things moving forward? Well, and I'd like to be more optimistic than Adam and the grim description of the hospice and no palliative care. But um, I mean, it needs to have a conscious political dialogue uh, where the healthcare is... Um, at the center point of interest and not private agendas uh, of each ministry or each party or each political party that go, you know, before the, 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 the well-being, the sanity uh, of the people. I mean, I lost my best friend because she, she traveled, uh, you know, she immigrated, immigrated. Uh, many of my colleagues left uh, a country whose doctors are leaving, whose um, great doctors are leaving because they have opportunity outside. These people um, are leaving because they can. So the people who are staying here, are there, they are staying by choice. But as Alexandra clearly mentioned, they are suffering from burnout. And uh, they, they are you know, desperate uh, at, at certain times, maybe feel helpless. These are people who studied years, years to be able to serve people. They went through med school. 
and and the least is to give them a decent country first to be able to keep the people sane and alive so what's next uh, i'd like to think i'd like to think that the elections that are coming you know soon the will change a certain profile you know a certain way of doing things uh, we will have a long-term strategy and a very very quick dramatic short-term solution but these are all uh, you know hopes and speculations so shireen how do you feel you're right you're, you're practicing in private clinics and also practicing uh, with ngos uh, on the ground there do you, do you feel burned out yourself or or how do you feel what's your what's your feeling about the situation I mean, currently right now, I am not directly practicing with NGOs. I I used to do that when I was uh, just finishing my uh, residency and then the you know when I started the primary care. I mean, the primary care uh, healthcare in Lebanon didn't encourage me to stay in primary care, and that's one of the problems. I too shifted to more. Uh, specialized care in the sense where I was driven to work with cancer patients, with which is a bit more specialized than just a GP, you know. I take care of a specific population, and now I broadened my practice into anti-aging, which is a more honestly say is a luxurious medicine it uh, it's not something it's you know when when you have problems okay you can treat it but preventive medicine it's only for the people who really are well and uh, working with this keeps me sane and uh, keeps me uh, keeps me in the country um, and I really take care of myself and I travel a lot just to keep that balance between you know giving a good energy inside the country helping the people inside the country but also I'd say releasing uh, the cumulative stress stressors that we face here. Um, that's a bit my personal um, experience about the thing. Okay. And, and Alexander, do you, do you share the same uh, grim outlook too, or do you have a different outlook of the situation? Again, I would love very much to have a different, um, you know, an alternative reality. Uh, but I do think the way that things are going in Oh, I hate to say this, but in large part, you know, the, the, the ripping off of the Band-Aid has been extended because the Lebanese are so resourceful. And so, you know, they have really, I think, tried in every possible way to, to fill the gaps and make it work. Um, but in doing so, then the, the, the weight has been on them just like it has been on civil society for so very long. Um, and unfortunately, moving forward with knowing, you know, those who I know who are planning to continue to leave, I do very, very much worry about the region, particularly as so much of the attention is now obviously on other crises in the world um, and, and, and funding for the region decreases as well. So, um, like Adam said, there is an enormous need for actual political will if this is to turn around. Right. And I will get from all of you after uh, offline, we'll get some uh, specifics on some of the uh, NGOs uh, that are working on the ground and maybe suggestions for uh, donations to these uh, NGOs. Uh, and hopefully we'll get follow up. I think we, we, we saw a lot of people being uh, interviewed in the documentaries, such as Dr. Mawad and his hospital and, and others. And, and, uh, and certainly, Hopefully, with time, we'll get some follow-up on, on the situation of uh, these individuals who were interviewed in the documentary. Yeah. Uh, sorry, Hillel, just to add, uh, not to add to the pile of misery, but... <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
a lot of these things can be fixed by political will. Right. It, but it, it is clear in the region, Syria, Lebanon, that health, the, the well-being of populations is a low priority. This is what we found in our report. This is from 10 years of research. People prefer to play sectarian politics instead of taking care of dialysis patients or the elderly. It's, I mean, that's, and, and, and that's why I think it's going to be important. I mean, the, the elections in Lebanon are coming up and uh, on May 15th, and, uh, and in the diaspora, the elections will be May 6th and May 8th. And I think that's why it's important for everybody to get out the vote. And maybe maybe things will change. I don't know. Hopefully. But it, well, I, I don't think so. It's entirely predictable, I think. Uh, I agree, but I think... <laughs> But, this is cut from the podcast, but <laughs> uh, so hopefully. Um, and uh, finally, finally, the last question is: where, where, where is your research taking you from here, uh, Adam? To support people on the ground, civil servants in Lebanon, the region. Um, yeah, I mean, our universities in the UK, US, Europe are ready waiting to help uh, as the Shireen and Alexandra um, but it can't this, these things can't be done on a shoestring by academics, it needs serious UN political will right, can't emphasise that enough and any, any final words uh, Shireen and Alexandra uh, I think we covered really most of the very important points about this. And thank you. I'd like to thank everybody for participating today. Thank you, Khalil, for hosting us. It's been such um, a pleasure to share these uh, findings and information and to speak these out loud. And hopefully we can reach uh, many and you know, raise more awareness about this issue. Absolutely. Um, and again, thank you, Khalil, for even elevating this on your platform. I think perhaps my last um, my last thought is that um, the diaspora has a role. The diaspora absolutely has a role, even on the day to day, being able to support the morale of um, your, you know, your um, everyday person, but as well as the um, health care staff in Lebanon. Um, and I think that not to little that because at this point really everything counts so that sort of support helps people feel that they're not forgotten and really taken for granted in, in a system that they're really trying to still uphold all right thank you uh, thanks to all of you for being uh, on the podcast and uh hopefully i'll uh, we'll see you all uh, sometime in lebanon i guess when i when i visit this summer maybe we'll contact you and we'll see you all there thank you yes, pleasure. Inshallah. <laughs> Bye. Cheers. Bye.